Hey everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today's case is a little different. Today's case was at the request of a few listeners who were part of a Facebook group called Justice for Taylor. Taylor's parents, Bill and Leslie, are endlessly fighting to see justice come to the men involved in the death of their daughter, and it's time for us to join them. This is the story of Taylor McAllister. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. Growing up, Taylor was the kind of person who put everything she had into the things that she found important. She was an all-or-nothing kind of girl. In high school, her top priorities were powder puff football and music. She was the quarterback for her powder puff team, and when her head was in the game, it wasn't anywhere else. She was there to win, and if she was taken out for a play or two during the game, she hated it. She wanted to be a part of everything going on, and she wanted to do anything that she could to make sure her team won. But music, music was a huge passion of hers. I'll post some videos of her singing in her highlight at the top of my Instagram profile. She had a great voice and her parents say that she used to sit in her room for three to four hours at a time and just remaster songs, record covers, and just feel the music. However, these personality traits are what leads me to our next stop in her life story. It's where we realize that she has an addictive personality, which can be a blessing and a curse. I have one as well, and I get it. An addictive personality is dangerous, but when channeled in healthy ways can be really fruitful in your job, in fitness, or for her in football and music. But unfortunately for her, her addictive personality started to go down an unhealthy path around the time she turned 18. Taylor had a really open and honest relationship with her parents and flat out told them, look, I don't want to hide this from you. I've been experimenting with pills and I don't do it all the time, but I do do it when I'm at parties or hanging out with friends. Like most parents, they weren't happy about it, but they were happy that she trusted them enough to be honest about it. Bill and Leslie set boundaries, rules for what would and wouldn't be allowed in their house since, I mean, they love her and they want what's best for her, but they also had younger kids in the house to think about too. And Taylor didn't like them. So she moved out of her parents' house and in with a friend whose place was pretty much a party den. And with that, her parents stopped hearing from her much at all. They would go months at a time without getting a phone call or a text message. In 2013, when she was around 19 or 20, she started to work at a local Japanese restaurant, and it's there that she met a guy named Joshua and fell in love. They were both using, and they got to spend every waking moment together, both inside and outside of work. It was an addictive personality tsunami. Three months after meeting Joshua, Bill and Leslie got a random text one night. It was from a friend and was a screenshot of Taylor and Joshua holding up a marriage certificate. They zoomed in on the picture, and the certificate had both Taylor and Joshua's names on it. They had gone down to the courthouse without telling a soul and got married. It was impulsive, yes, but it turns out that it was also part of a bigger plan that no one else knew about. Joshua was in the Coast Guard and was about to be sent to Seattle. If Taylor wanted to go with him, they needed to be married. So that's what they did. Somehow, Joshua managed to pass drug tests for a while and maintain his position in the military. Taylor's parents said the two had bottles of urine in their freezer and in their car, which they would use to pass drug tests. And yes, this was stranger urine. 
From the outside looking in, they managed to maintain what seemed like a normal life. They just seemed like some lustfully in love newlyweds, but behind closed doors, it was a completely different story. There was the constant need for more money so they could support their drug habit, and subsequently, a constant need for clean urine to pass drug tests to keep the jobs that were funding the drug use. Drug use that had now gone well past pills and included anything they could afford. Frankly, the effort put in was phenomenal. No one can say that she wasn't hardworking and determined. That never changed. It was just ill-directed. It wasn't long after Joshua and Taylor got settled in Seattle that she found out she was pregnant. And this time, she did tell her parents. Bill and Leslie were sitting on their porch one night in mid-2013 when they got a text from their daughter. I'm pregnant. They just kind of looked at each other, trying to process everything before they responded. But before they got the chance, a second text came in. With twins. Well, fuck. There are now two babies on the way. The timing of the pregnancy was rough. They were both still using, and Joshua was about to be sent underway, which means that he was about to be put on a boat and sent out into the ocean, and Taylor would be left alone on a military base in Seattle while everyone she's ever known is back in Florida. Naturally, her parents told her to come back home, and they'd help her through the pregnancy, so she did, and they did. Taylor gets and stays clean throughout her nine-month pregnancy. Her parents take her to all of her OB appointments, and one of the doctors even tells her, if you ever test positive at any of these appointments, I'm going to have to contact child services. And she didn't seem to care. She was confident in her sobriety, and rightfully so. She never once tested positive, and in May of 2014, she gave birth to two beautiful and perfectly healthy baby girls, Charlie and Madison, and Taylor was in love. Joshua's time during Taylor's pregnancy wasn't as stable or blissful. He may have been out on a ship in the middle of nowhere, but he managed to blow through all their money. And according to Taylor's parents, his parents finally realized that their son had a drug problem and took matters into their own hands and told his command. His command ordered him to go to rehab, and he did, but after the rehab, he got discharged from the military and came back to Florida. Joshua and Taylor were both clean and sober together for the first time, and finally there was some hope. They both had a fresh start, they both had really well-to-do families who were willing to support them in healthy ways, and they had two beautiful baby girls. If there was any point in their lives where things were going to turn around, it was now. The two got their own little apartment close to family, but everything started to go downhill way quicker than anyone could have imagined. Within just a couple months, domestic abuse begins to riddle their new family home and Joshua gets arrested, but they stay together. Taylor's parents catch wind that the two might be using again, so they contact the sheriff's department, who sends someone over that same day, and it was true. The drugs were back, and the girls, who were just a few months old, were taken from the home. Now, I'm elated that CPS stepped in so quickly because we've seen so many scenarios where they dick around and the kids become the victims, but this isn't one of those cases. It does get a little weird, though. 
One of the twins was placed with Bill and Leslie, Taylor's parents, and the other twin was placed with Joshua's parents. From what Bill told me, he thinks they split the twins up after meeting both Taylor and Josh and both sets of their parents. He thinks CPS figured that coming from well-established families with a good support system and having gotten clean before, that Joshua and Taylor would go through the reunification process in no time and the girls would be back together before they ever noticed they were apart. And frankly, that's exactly what happened. Taylor and Joshua were given a drug test one week after the girls were taken away, which they both passed, and voila, the twins were back at the house and they were a family again. But bridges were burned. Taylor stopped talking to her parents, blaming them for what happened, not able to see that they were doing it not only for the good of the girls, but hoping it would inspire some change in herself as well, but it didn't. Just a few months later, while Taylor's parents were out Black Friday shopping, they got a call that there was another domestic violence incident at the apartment, and CPS was taking the girls again. So, just like before, Bill and Leslie got in the car, picked up the girls, and brought them back to their house. This time, the drug use and the constant domestic violence got Taylor and Joshua evicted from their apartment, and the couple was now homeless. At first, they lived in their car. Occasionally, they would couch surf. They would panhandle wherever they could and stay at a cheap hotel for the night here or there. And eventually got in contact with a drug dealer who, in return for letting him borrow their car, he would give them pills and put them up in a hotel. And that became their regular gig. The reunification process for getting the girls back was never a huge priority after this. They could have supervised visits, but Taylor's parents didn't want Joshua around, and Joshua's parents didn't want Taylor around, so when they saw the girls, it was always separate, and it wasn't frequent. Between supervised visits, Taylor's parents wouldn't hear from her for a couple months at a time. They were ordered to go through therapy and rehab, and both started a handful of times, but wouldn't finish it. But finally, after multiple attempts in early 2016, Taylor checks into rehab again and finally gets clean. Her father wanted her to move back home to get her away from the lifestyle that she'd been living in, but has to ask the courts to allow it since they have custody of the twins. Thankfully, they do allow it. Bill and Leslie set some non-negotiable boundaries if she was going to live there, and they're pretty simple. No drugs, no Joshua. And Taylor seemed okay with it at first. She genuinely seemed focused on being a mother, and it was a really nice change to see. Taylor wasn't her addiction. She never was. No one is. In her bones, Taylor was beautiful and creative and kind. She decided she wanted to go to Narcotics Anonymous, but someone told her not to, saying that drug dealers seek them out to sell pills. So this person told her to go to AA instead, so that's what Taylor did. But slowly, something started to change, and her parents were worried again that something was going on. Her dad was driving around one night and saw his truck in the parking lot of the AA meeting that Taylor had driven it to. In the alley beside it, he notices a familiar vehicle. It's Joshua's. Joshua sees Taylor's dad and Taylor hops in the vehicle and Joshua speeds away, hoping that Bill hadn't seen them. But Bill's smart. He knows she's going to have to come back for his truck, so he goes into the AA meeting and just sits and waits. And what do you know, when it's wrapping up, Taylor walks in the back door, sees her father and says, oh, hey, as if he hadn't just seen her drive away with Joshua an hour before. Taylor hadn't been going to meetings. She had been using them as an excuse to see Joshua. Not only were they addicted to the drugs again, they were still addicted to each other. 
Bill told Taylor that she needed to leave the house, that he couldn't have Joshua or drugs around the girls or the other young children in the home, and this time Taylor fought back. She said she wasn't going anywhere and that she knew her rights and that he needed to evict her, and in her anger started slamming doors and throwing things around the house. So once again, Bill and Leslie were forced to call the police on the daughter they loved, but this time the police didn't do anything. So they called CPS and CPS told Taylor that she needed to take a drug test and pass it to be able to continue to stay in the same house as her daughters. Otherwise, they'd have to remove the twins again from the only stable home they knew. Taylor refused instead of taking the drug test and instead of risking the twins being taken away from yet another home, she packed her things and left. This time, she moved in with a friend named Emily, and Emily was a good influence. She wasn't a drug user, she worked hard, she adulted like a boss, and she knew the good inside Taylor and wanted to give her a chance. It works out for a minute, like maybe a whole minute, until Taylor gets a job at a bar and meets a girl named Julie and starts using crack. Julie delivers this amazing idea of creating a back page account and taking pictures for guys who would then pay for them. But we all know what Backpage is for, and before long, Taylor was at her rock bottom. She started to prostitute. Through Julie, Taylor met a man named Robert, who Julie had known through Backpage. He was an old, rich, white dude who liked to order women off the internet. Robert moved Taylor into his house and, for lack of a better term, kind of became her master. They would have sex, he would arrange her drug deals, some with Deontay, a drug dealer he also moved into his house, and some with a dealer she already used for pills. He allowed her to continue using her pill dealer because it wasn't something Deontay supplied, but the rest had to come from him. You can see where the control is starting to seep in. Robert would give her money for clothes or whatever and would supply her with drugs, and she would supply him with sex and cleaning. Yes, cleaning. Something Deontay also claims that Robert paid him to do. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that cleaning is a nice word you can write on a check to make it look less suspicious when you're cashing it, but definitely has nothing to do with cleaning. And yes, Robert paid everyone in checks, leaving a trail of banking information behind him because he's stupid and because he takes advantage of homeless drug dealers and women who've resorted to prostitution because they've lost their way in life. Robert created his own little drug and sex utopia in his fancy house in his nice, affluent neighborhood. Unfortunately, that utopia was about to become a full-fledged nightmare, and Robert would make sure damn near everyone he knew would take the fall before he'd ever allow himself to be held responsible for what was about to happen to 22-year-old Taylor McAllister. On December 22nd, 2016, Bill McAllister was at home and Leslie McAllister was at work and both got the visit from the police department that they hoped would never come. Their 22-year-old daughter, Taylor McAllister, was dead. But it didn't look like an overdose. She wasn't found slumped over in a chair. She wasn't found in a dirty hotel room. No, she was found around 8 a.m. by someone taking a morning walk in a grass and dirt alley behind a row of fairly nice houses. She was completely naked aside from a men's t-shirt pulled all the way up to her neck. 
She had bruising to her neck and wrists, and one report even said that she had obvious bruising to her vaginal area, along with what looked like old injection sites that had scabbed over. She had abrasions pretty much all over, to her forearms, legs, cheeks, and mouth, you name it, but those also had been scabbed over, so it was assumed that they'd happened sometime before her death. This sounds like a lot of injuries, and they were, but they weren't massive injuries that screamed cause of death. Most of the people involved assumed it was an overdose due to her history and the track marks, but there was one obvious factor that left some doubt. Tire tracks, not beside her body, but across her legs. Someone had run her over and never called police about it. Taylor didn't know anyone who lived there. She had no reason to be in that area, let alone in the alley behind the houses. None of it made any sense. She had no liver mortis present, so she had died likely within the last three hours. She was in rigor when the Emmy was called to the scene, which was about five hours after she was found. Rigor mortis sets in between three to 12 hours after death. If she was found around 8 a.m. that morning with no liver mortis and was in rigor mortis five hours later around 1 p.m., we can gauge that she probably died somewhere between 4 and 5 a.m. Police start asking neighbors if they heard anything, and most didn't, but a few did mention hearing vehicle doors slamming and a woman screaming. Now, these were reported between 1.30 a.m. and 3.30 a.m. It was so significant that people were woken up out of their sleep and went outside to see what was going on, but every single person said that they didn't see anything. Police call Joshua since he's still legally her husband, and he tells them that Taylor had actually been living with this guy named Robert. Yes, the Robert from Backpage. And what happens next, and pretty much throughout the remainder of this investigation, is a blur. I watched hours and hours of interrogation videos from the suspects in this case, and their story was anything but consistent. However, inconsistencies can be what makes a case. So here we go. It was the exact same day that they found Taylor that police went to Robert's house to question him, but he wasn't there. No one was there. Which was odd because he housed damn near anyone who could feed his addictions, whether it was drugs or sex. Where was he? He was out getting his shitty 2008 Ford Tundra detailed. Dude had a BMW, and the day a girl who lived with him is found dead in an alley, he's out detailing the least expensive vehicle he owns. Not suspicious at all. Eventually, law enforcement does get a hold of him, and he plays dumb. He says that he knew who Taylor was and that she stayed with him sometimes, but that he only knew that she was dead from the news. This would turn out to be anything but true. On the night of the 21st, Deontay, Robert's live-in drug dealer, was out with two friends when he got a call from Robert around 8 p.m. Could have been closer to 9 p.m. Who fucking knows? Doesn't matter. The cell phone records aren't something me or Taylor's parents have been given access to. Robert tells Deontay to come to his house now, that Taylor's sick, and that he, Deontay, needs to come take her to the hospital. Not Robert, Deontay. For whatever reason, Robert just cannot be the one who takes her to the hospital, or so much as calls 911 if this is so serious. Not knowing what the fuck Robert's talking about, Deontay, his friend Q, who was driving, since Deontay doesn't have a license, and a third guy who was also with him, drive to Robert's house to try and figure out what's going on. They walk inside, and everyone is hit with not-it syndrome. 
They were all thinking Taylor was sick, but according to Deontay and Q's interrogations, she was on the brink of death. They describe her as being super high, laying on Robert's bed, completely naked, with her legs spread open, and just moaning, intermittently cussing, and if anyone touched her, she would scream in pain. Taylor had also urinated on herself. Robert insisted that they take her to the hospital ASAP and get her out of his house. According to Deontay and Q, they both wanted to call 911 because they didn't want to be two black guys taking a naked white girl into the emergency room in this condition. Which makes me wonder, what condition exactly was she in? Taking a sick girl to the hospital is generally viewed as a good thing, unless something else happened to her and they didn't want to be associated with it. At some point, Robert and Deontay went into the master bathroom and had a private conversation, and to this day, no one knows what was said. In one of the interrogation tapes, Deontay said Robert was freaking out like he had done something, and maybe he had. Maybe he knew that anyone who treated this girl, anyone who found out what was really going on, what made her so quote-unquote sick, would know that she didn't do it to herself, and Robert didn't want anyone even knowing he was associated with her. After some arguing, the three men do what they're told. One of them puts a big t-shirt on Taylor to somewhat cover her up and then pick her up and put her into the backseat of Robert's 2008 Tundra. In all of the interrogation videos, no one wants to take credit for being the one who put her in the truck, which is interesting because if you're just putting a sick girl into the truck with the intent to take her to the hospital, you're the good guy, right? Unless she wasn't actually alive or unless you never had any intention of taking her to the hospital. They argue about who's going to be the one to actually drive the truck Taylor slumped over in the back seat of, and it's decided that it's going to be Q because he has a license, which was full-on manipulation because even though Deontay doesn't have a license, he gets into Robert's BMW and either leads the caravan or follows behind Q and Taylor in the truck. This seems like an unimportant detail until you realize that Taylor never made it to any hospital. In fact, they passed more than one. Deontay's story is that Q didn't know the area well and passed by a hospital just a couple miles down the street because he didn't know it was there. But Q's story is completely different. Q says he was following Deontay, and when they came up to the hospital, police were pulling out. So instead of turning in, Deontay drove in the opposite direction. In fact, in Q's version of events, they weren't even looking for a hospital. They were looking to take her to a rehab facility. He doesn't start calling it a hospital until one of the interrogators slipped up and said the word hospital. And it's like he starts remembering that they were quote unquote taking her to the hospital. Like I said earlier, the story is a blur and it's because they didn't rehearse it well. So now they're in two separate cars, the BMW and the truck with Taylor in the back, not going to the hospital. And... Taylor stops moaning, is completely slumped over in the back seat, and Q says it smells like Taylor boo-booed on herself. In fact, he actually turns around and asks her, Ma'am, did you doo-doo? That's nasty. Why would you do that to yourself? Q calls Deontay, who's in the car in front of him or behind him, depending on who you ask, and says, I think this girl shit herself and I think she's dead. So they drive to an apartment complex that one of Deontay's baby mamas lives at. Yes, I said one of because there are endless amounts of baby mamas. They park both vehicles and one of the three guys goes to check on Taylor and she is, in fact, dead. 
They all start freaking out. What are we going to do now? We can't take a dead girl to the hospital. The third guy's pissed and wondering why in the hell they got him involved in this shit. Q's losing it because he was the one who was driving her around. So Deontay seems to take charge here and decides that they're going to find a place to put her body where someone will find her. At least that's what he says. If you ask Deontay, Q gets into the driver's seat of the truck with him in the passenger seat and the third guy in the back. If you ask Q, Deontay got into the driver's seat of the truck and Q in the passenger seat. In all stories, the third guy's in the back with Taylor and they drive around. Deontay says he considered propping her up against a gas station and letting someone find her just figuring she OD'd, but says that it was too well lit and he didn't want to be seen. So he opts for an alley just down the street behind a row of houses, knowing that people cut through there all the time and someone would find her. This is where I genuinely believe Deontay was leading this entire operation after they left Robert's house that night. They parked in an apartment complex he was familiar with and dumped Taylor in an alley he somehow knew she wouldn't go unnoticed in. The men drive down this grass and dirt alley and someone gets Taylor out of the truck. This is another huge argument in the interrogations. Who got Taylor out of the truck? Deontay swears it wasn't him, but said some really suspect shit like, she was only 100 pounds, it wasn't nothing to move her, we could have just put her in a bush or something, and mentions how light she was more than once. That's a lot of information about her weight for someone who says he didn't move her. Q vehemently insists that he never once touched Taylor. He even asked to take a polygraph on multiple occasions. He clearly doesn't understand how worthless polygraphs are, but is still willing to take one to make sure all of the investigators know that he never touched her. But if they genuinely think she was just super high and died of a drug overdose, why do they care so much about being the one who carried her to the truck or pulled her out? Sure, once she's dead, you're committing a crime by dumping her body, but it's not just getting her out of the truck that they stumble over. Either way, both of them describe whoever got her out of the truck as carrying her like a baby and neatly placing her down into a dirt patch in the grassy alley. But I saw a photo of her body at the crime scene, and while I'd never share it with anyone else, I can tell you that no one neatly placed her anywhere. Her arms were out and upward, her legs were open, and her shirt was pulled up past her chest and up at her collarbones. If she was slumped over in the truck, gravity decides that her shirt is still covering her body. If you pick her up like a baby, her arms and shoulders over one arm and her knees bent over your other arm, gravity again determines that her shirt would still be covering her body. Her legs would be together and her arms would somewhat be at her side. The only way her shirt gets pulled up around her collarbone and her arms point outward and upward is if the upper half of her body was upside down at some point or if she was dragged by her feet, but there were no drag marks. And none of that explains her legs being open. The only thing that explains the position of her body is if she was indeed slumped over in the truck against one of the doors and someone opened the door and her upper body just fell out. Then someone pulls her arms or pushes her legs just enough to get her completely out of the truck. They fall where they will and they speed away. This is also the only thing that would explain the tire tracks across her legs. 
You know they didn't baby carry her and put her in front of the running truck just to make sure they ran over her and left some extra evidence behind. You know these guys weren't trying to be seen in an alley behind a row of occupied houses. They weren't going to take their time to neatly place a dead girl's body, risking the chance of being caught. My guess is they opened the door, pulled or pushed her just enough to get her out of the truck, and then hauled ass. After they dump Taylor's body, they all go back to the apartment complex where Deontay left the BMW and then all drive back to Robert's house where Deontay calls Q's half-sister, Niasha, to come pick them up. When she gets there, Robert tells her and Q to go to the gas station. Q tells investigators that they went to the gas station because Deontay gave her $20 for gas for coming to get them. So they ask him, what else did you get there? And Q stumbles. He just can't remember. He mentions that he got a Reese's and he can remember that, but that's not why they're asking. They ask again, what else did you get at that gas station? Lighter fluid. They got lighter fluid. Robert had sent them to the gas station to buy lighter fluid. They bring it back to Robert's house and Robert had a box of Taylor's clothes packed and ready to be burned, making sure all traces of her living there are destroyed and he instructed everyone else to take their clothes off too and burn those as well. After the burning ceremony, Niasha takes everyone home for the night or morning, but when they wake up, everyone goes straight back to Robert's house where they pick up that truck and take it to get detailed. Meanwhile, another friend of theirs, Miriam, comes to clean up the house. Robert had a full-fledged cover-up plan, and for some reason, everyone was on board. While they were detailing that truck was when police made their first attempt to try and contact Robert about the dead girl who reportedly lived there being found in an alley. The autopsy report comes back for Taylor. It's not an overdose. She had cocaine metabolites in her system, but no other drugs. I sent Taylor's autopsy report to a nurse practitioner who specializes in drug use complications, and he said this meant that Taylor hadn't consumed any cocaine in at least 24 hours prior to her death. Taylor wasn't high when they got to Robert's house that night. Her cause of death was asphyxiation. She had been murdered. I'm going to give you a second to rehash everything you've heard and figure out how and where in the fuck asphyxiation comes into play. According to Bill, Taylor's father, the Emmy told him that Taylor had the worst case of petechia that he'd ever seen, which is common in victims of strangulation. Her autopsy also showed that she had muscular hemorrhages to her neck and torso, almost as if someone sat across her and strangled her. I can't decide whether or not I believe she was still alive when the men got to Robert's house to take her to the hospital or rehab, depending on who you ask. Both say that she seemed high out of her mind, which we know she wasn't. However, in the course of whatever happened to Taylor that night, which could have been caused by the strangulation and could explain her seeming really out of it. They took swabs for DNA from underneath Taylor's fingernails and from her neck, and they both tested positive. For whose DNA? Robert's. Whatever happened in that house before those three men got there, Robert was responsible for. 
You could say that an investigation was done, but in reality, Bill and Leslie waited and waited and waited. And it wasn't until December of 2017, almost an entire year later, that a search warrant was executed on Robert's house. A year. What in the free hell did they expect to find a year after they knew the crime scene had been cleaned up? They took pictures of everything. They even took the truck, took the tires off, you know, everything they should have done a year earlier because nothing had changed. Their stories were still the same. The autopsy was still the same. The DNA results were still the same. The only thing different was that Robert had an entire year to clean up his crime scene. What's interesting is that Robert did keep a few things. In his house, they found Taylor's purple Bible, which had her name embroidered on it, Taylor's guitar, and a phone, the exact same model of hers, at the bottom of Robert's pool. Police have the serial number of the phone. Hell, I have the serial number of the phone. And Taylor's parents still haven't been told whether or not it belongs to their daughter. What they do know is that Taylor's phone stopped having any activity whatsoever four days prior to her death. According to AP News, the injuries to the arteries in the neck during strangulation can cause someone to stroke and die days, weeks, or months after the assault. Taylor hadn't called or texted a single soul since December 18, 2016. Is it possible that he assaulted her days before causing this stroke on the 22nd and knew that there would be evidence of it if someone took her to the hospital? A lot of people have wondered why he wouldn't have gotten rid of the things that were obviously Taylor's, why he would hold on to them for a year, knowing people questioned his involvement, but I think it gives us a little insight into his psyche. He couldn't bring himself to get rid of the Bible. He couldn't burn it with the rest of her things, which screams religious guilt. Emphasis on the word guilt. He couldn't throw her whole guitar into the fireplace, but he could have destroyed it. He could have sold it. He could have put it in a dumpster and walked away, but he didn't. That guitar is the one thing Taylor always took with her wherever she wound up. Even when she wasn't taking care of herself, she took care of that guitar. Of all the things she did in her desperation for drugs, selling that guitar never crossed her mind. That guitar symbolized everything positive in Taylor, all of her beauty, all of her talents, all of her drive, and he couldn't bring himself to let it go. I genuinely believe that he had whole ass feelings for her, and granted, we know the way he showed them was heinous and toxic and demented, but I think he had them. We know that Taylor and Joshua loved one another, but manifested that love into toxic actions. And I think the same goes for Robert. His manifestations were just 10 times worse and resulted in her being found dead in an alley and calling in the troops to clean up his mess. I'd love to tell you that justice was served on everyone involved in the death and cover-up of Taylor McAllister's murder, but that's just not the reality here. Robert, Deontay, and Q were charged with, wait for it, Failure to report a death. And even that skid mark of a charge took an entire fucking year to happen. And that's it. No one was charged with murder. No one was charged with desecration of human remains. No one was arrested for tampering with evidence. No one was arrested for aiding and abetting or accomplice after the fact. No one was so much as arrested for giving false statements. 
Robert was sentenced to a year but only served eight months. Deontay served one single year of time. Q was sentenced to six months but only served four. And the fourth guy, the one in the truck with Deontay and Q, the entire time got nothing. Deontay literally spent more time in jail than Robert, whose DNA was under Taylor's fingernails and on her neck. The guy who burned her belongings after calling friends to come get her out of his house and telling them not to call 911. Her case is still considered a homicide. It's not closed and everyone involved is out of jail, living in the free world as if nothing ever happened. As soon as there is any movement in this case, if Taylor ever sees even an ounce of the justice she deserves, I will update you the minute it happens. For all photos and maps related to this case, check out Taylor's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley. If you like your podcast ad-free, head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, or for just one whole dollar a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. If you need more episodes in your life, for just $5 a month, you get a bonus episode on the first Monday of every month. All of your episodes are ad-free, and you'll also receive a forever discount code for all Big Mad True Crime merch, and of course... Anytime you sign up, you get instant access to all previous bonus episodes. I'll be bringing you a brand new case a week from today, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out. (laughs) 